Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. Why? A couple reasons. Number one, fall is in the air here in lower Alabama. Goodbye, summer. Don't let the screen door hit you on the way out. It literally felt like trying to run a medical device business on the surface of Venus this year. Number two reason I'm having a great day, our new addition to the family. An amazing German Shepherd puppy comes from a long line of police dogs. I wanted to name him Attack, but got a little pushback for reasons I just don't understand. So we settled in on Zeke. Speaking of, getting a German Shepherd puppy, it seems to have that same vibe as owning a motorcycle. The moment you tell someone you have one, they feel obligated to share a horror story with you. A neighbor of mine stopped at the end of the driveway yesterday. He saw Zeke and here we go. Yeah, my friend had one. They left him alone for an hour and he ate an entire living room set. Another neighbor would stop by a few minutes later to warn me about German Shepherd's love for drywall. Drywall? Apparently a friend of his left his shepherd alone. They now have an open floor plan. Well, we're certainly excited none of this has happened yet. Zeke and I were both so excited about this newfound lack of humidity. We've had a good roll in the grass over the weekend. Not as many neighbors have stopped by since, strangely. This dog is so smart. I cannot wait for the real training to begin. I'm so going to teach this pup how to sniff out expired implants. And lastly, the third reason I'm having such a great day, Device Nation has hit quite a milestone with this very episode. (laughs) Can we all just take a moment to sing along in the car? Any excuse to record a guitar solo. It just took 100 episodes to pull this one off. Well, I hope it was worth the wait. We should all be taking a celebratory roll in the grass. Who cares what the neighbors think? It's a centennial celebration. 100 episodes, 100,000 downloads. Just crazy, given how niche our world is, right? Speaking of, ever try to throw stress shielding or taper corrosion into dinner conversation with your family at Thanksgiving? Niche? Indeed. Well, a huge thank you from the bottom of my box-opening heart to everyone in this incredible audience for helping us reach this summit. An audience I regularly refer to as the best of the best, not because that's what you want to hear, but because it's true. I've learned so much climbing Mount Device Rep alongside all of you, some truly amazing men and women in this industry, and you deserve something special for sticking around this long. A celebratory interview today with someone who is not just summited, but has planted a flag at the top of this reconstruction mountain that has changed literally the history of hip replacement forever. A legendary name in our industry, Dr. William H. Harris. And it's only fitting on this very special episode that Device Nation brings you the current president of the Hip Society, former president of AUKUS and Harris Hip Fellow, the estimable Dr. Bill Jeronic, to lay out the red carpet for Dr. Harris. So put on your party hat, no more horns please, because you don't want to miss a moment here on our 100th episode anniversary special. A couple of thoughts before we get going. Longtime listeners remember the tagline we started with 100 episodes ago. Don't you feel so old now? Bringing you ideas, stories, and interviews to take you from good to great. That was the goal then. That's the goal now. But a lot of things have changed since then. But our why will always be that. We would all like to go from good to great in one fell swoop, right? Like selling 50 robots in the first quarter with an immediate promotion to CEO. But it doesn't quite happen like that, does it? Building a house called great takes a lot of seemingly small bricks. that just add up over time. About 10,000 just to build an average-sized house. 
else, and such is life, such as training a German shepherd puppy. If we can just focus on a few bricks today, a few marginal gains instead of building an entire house, like not pulling the drapes down, chasing the cat, or developing a taste for drywall, well, then that's a great day. Looking for something to create a great day in your ASC? Well, here's some bricks. Here's some marginal gains for you. A really cool tray customization system from One Tray. It's called Easy Tracks. They sent me a few to test drive, and here's 100 reasons why I believe you need to check it out. We've got a theme going on today. I'm just kidding. How about just three? Number one, in the ASC, space is at a premium. Less is more. So if I can do eight total knees Monday with just five sets of instruments, that's a win for everybody from the SPD, your back, even your distributor and your company. Have you noticed how tight sets are these days? And don't get me started on shipping costs. Number two, speaking of cases, what if you get the trays needed to do each one of those total knees on Monday whittled down to one tray, pun intended, or even two or three? You think your scrub tech would appreciate that? Number three, I'm all about consolidation and the time-honored way we've always done this is to take an impactor here, a punch there, a cutting guide over there, and just move it all into a basket. Well, guess what just happened there? We left the safe harbor of the manufacturer's IFU, and that's not good in case something goes sideways that could come back to bite us like a post-op infection. When you're a 1099, you kind of have to be your own risk management department, right? Well, here's a huge marginal gain for you. One tray has the IFU, has the validations, has the safe harbor for us as we look to do more with less. Think this could change the way you put cases together next week, reach out to us at thedevicenation at gmail.com for more information. I know what you're thinking. Kevin, marginal gain sounds like an accounting class. I made a D in. That's why I went into sales. I just like big ideas. We'll try this big idea on for size. Small yet significant improvements can lead to monumental results, i.e. marginal gains. There's that theme again. Want proof? British cycling. Over 100 years of mediocrity. It was so underwhelming that one of the top bike man manufacturers in Europe refused to sell bikes to the team because they were concerned it would hurt their sales if other professionals saw the Brits using their gear. This would all change in 2003 when they hired a coach by the name of Dave Brailsford who came to the table with a very wordy strategy called aggregation of marginal gains, a principle that came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and improve it by 1%, you would get a significant increase if you put all of that together. So did it work or did it just brief well? Well, During the 10-year span from 2007 to 2017, British cyclists won 178 world championships and 66 Olympic or Paralympic gold medals and captured five Tour de France victories in what was widely regarded as the most successful run in cycling history. I'm a huge Tour de France fan. I love the scenery, love seeing the guy dressed up as a devil chasing the riders, love the commentary as I believe Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin to be the absolute pinnacle of sports commentators. No one comes even close, although hockey's Doc Emmerich is a close second. I will never forget watching the very race that Chris Froome won. All those small gains adding up to just a dominating performance. Look, do the math. I hate math, but this is profound. Improving by 1% every day doesn't produce results most of us could even see, but like compound interest, it adds up. If you can just get 1% better every day for 365 days, you'll end up 37 times better by December 31st. Now that's a BB gun behind this tree. Conversely, if you get 1% worse every day for one year, you'll find yourself at that office New Year's party with an eye missing back at zero. I love this quote from author and motivational speaker Jim Rohn. Success is a few simple disciplines practiced every day, 
while failure is simply a few errors in judgment repeated every day. Well, how do any of us listening to the amazing guests we've had the privilege to hear from over these 100 episodes not get at least 1% better? I'm not the same, are you? So get ready for more today. Get ready for better because more better is coming at you with Dr. Bill Jeronic. The first thing I shared with him when we met face-to-face recently was just how loved he was by the reps. What a distinction to a T. Whenever I mentioned his name, and rep company. They all just went on and on and on about how much they so enjoy being in the operating room with him. I get all of that now as I so enjoy being in the room with him as well, even though it was a living room. Dr. Geronic, welcome to Device Nation, sir. Great to be with you, Kevin. We have a lot of listeners that are new to the industry. Hoping you could just take a moment to introduce yourself. Sure. I am an orthopedic surgeon, obviously, and I've been doing arthritis surgery, mostly hip and knee replacement for my entire career, which now uh, goes back 30 years. Well, Dr. Geronic, you've had a lot of roles over your career with the word president in front of them, president of AUKUS, president of the Orthopedic Learning Center in Rosemont, president of the Virginia Orthopedic Society, and one I'd like to talk to you about today, sir, your current role as president of the Hip Society. Congratulations, by the way. Would love to learn more about it, sir. The organization was formed 55 or 56 years ago by a bunch of interested physicians who were taking care of disorders of the hip, and it has remained a fairly difficult to get into society, requiring that you publish a certain amount of articles in the, a certain amount of time when you're trying to get in. And the advantage of that is you interact with a bunch of people that do what you do. And we have two meetings a year. And the, the meeting that I think everybody likes is what's called the closed meeting, where just the members come and they present their early stage research. And I think what often happens is people go, oh, that's a crazy idea, or no, that really makes sense. You should do this, this, and this. And I think the reason people like it is they get that feedback, and it helps them shape their ideas and develop their research. So it's one of the meetings that I enjoy going to the most. There's also a similar society for disorders of the knee. It's the same kind of setup there as well. I believe I saw a publication recently for both societies that had a curious word in the title, shack. Tell us about it. I was just with Bill Hamilton, who's the idea behind the learning shack, and society for hip and knee is what Uh, that stands for. Things are changing and people are learning in different ways than they were when I was a young buck. And um, we need to change with them. And obviously, everything has gone digital as in this podcast we're listening to. But um, I think it's going to make a big difference for how we pass our information about hip disorders to the public. How many members are in the HIP Society these days? It's capped at 100 currently, but I think it will probably stay at about that level. This may be a stupid question, but do you have to be an orthopedic surgeon to be a member? No. Most of the active members are surgeons, but there are affiliate members that are in all the related sciences that support HIP disorder, whether it's biomechanics or other basic science. We're constantly looking for new ideas of things we need to expand in, for example, Hip preservation was not something that started in the hip society, but we have embraced and our uh, members that do hip preservation continue to expand. Just inspiring work going on over at the hip society under your leadership.
leadership, sir, and it's no accident that you're here with us today, is I could not think of a better person to introduce the founder of the HIP Society than its current president and a Harris HIP fellow. Take it away, Dr. Geronic. Bill Harris is obviously very special to many of us. I had the privilege of being a fellow, which meant you went after you became an orthopedic surgeon, you went for a year of specialty training in hip surgery. It's not just that you spent a year with Bill Harris, you really spent your career with Bill Harris. Once you connected with him, he took an interest in what you were doing and where you were going. I think that's one of the things that has made his fellowship such a legacy. If you look at the people that have done his fellowship, so many of them have gone on to do great things in the academic space and has have continued his tradition. And if somebody asked me, what was Bill Harris's special gift other than connecting and maintaining those relationships with the people he worked with? He had a logistical gift for identifying things that needed to be done and in the order that they needed to be done to bring a new treatment, a new product, an improvement to our craft to fruition. I was lucky enough to be coming back to Boston as he was developing Crosslink Polyethylene in the early 2000. And, uh, and I actually saw in the late 90s and early uh, 2000s the work that he put into it, the zeal, the I'm not going to take no for an answer kind of attitude, which is what you have to have. As a consequence, he has accomplished an amazing cohort of things, including a rating scale, the very first uh, rating scale that we had for hip replacement, or one of the first, through to cross-linked poly, through to the numerous medical and surgical innovations that he has been a part of. And it rubbed off on all of his fellows. I think that they saw how this could be done and how this could improve the lives of patients. And a lot of them wanted to follow in his footsteps. You're so right, Dr. Geronic. Our industry is filled with people who have great ideas that look really good on napkins. But finding someone who has that gifting to move the chess pieces around the board to see something through to the end, that, that's special indeed, isn't it? That's a great analogy. He could move the chess pieces. He knew when to move them and where to move them, which was pretty cool. I've had more than a few people tell me he was the absolute hardest working person they had ever worked alongside. You know, and he's still doing it at 95 or 96 now. He is still a joy to talk to. His thought processes are still incredibly sharp, his memory as well. It's a lot of fun to see him. Well, thank you for that trip down memory lane, Dr. Geronic. And again, so appreciate your hard work here in Durham, North Carolina and on the national front. I'm just going to step back and give you the honor, sir, introduce our very special guest today. Thanks, Kevin. It is a great honor to be able to introduce somebody who has been a mentor, advisor, motivator, and friend for over 30 years, and that is uh, Dr. Bill Harris. I think that in my role as president of the HIP Society, the entire HIP Society appreciates and learns from Bill Harris. But there are plenty of other societies, um, such as the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, that have gained from his energies, 
Certainly, the Orthopedic Research and Education Foundation has gained from what he has to bring. He still continues to touch base and be involved uh, with all of us. At over 95, that's pretty impressive. So on that note, welcome to the show, Dr. Harris. Well, thank you very much. What an honor to have a true living legend on the line today to help celebrate the 100th release of Device Nation, the Dr. Bill Harris, the shoulders upon which we all stand, sir. Just an incredible career. First stop, let's go to Great Falls, Montana. What was it like growing up in the Harris household? It was marvelous. My dad was a general practitioner at the uh, Anaconda Smelter in uh, Great Falls, Montana. And my mother had been a teacher, uh, and they both... uh, were raised uh, in tiny towns. Uh, Dad was a town of 3,000. Mother's was a town of 600 people in Kansas. And they were dedicated, committed, charming, lovely, and loving parents. And I had an older brother who also became a physician and ultimately chair of uh, radiology at the University of Texas in the Herman Hospital in Houston. So the family was tight-knit, committed to improving life in the uh, surrounding area and also possibly advancing it uh, in a broader scope as well. It was fun. It was challenging. It was important and, uh, and loving. So tell me, sir, when did you discover your passion for orthopedics? Uh, that's an interesting tale also. My dad had been in uh, World War One and was assigned to the medical corps in the army near Mont Saint Michel in France. In that role, was given a motorcycle, and as we were kids, uh, he would tell us wonderful tales about roaring all over France on his motorcycle. That prompted us to uh, lust for a motorcycle when we were <laughs> in our teenage. And uh, he was determined that uh, the risks were much too high. He practiced in a small town of 20,000 people uh, called Carlisle, Pennsylvania, that you may know about because Jim Thorpe and the Indian School. And it was right on the Pennsylvania Turnpike route so that much of his practice in radiology was trauma. And so we're now talking about in the the late 30s and early 40s, and there weren't very many constraints on going to the operating room. So one Sunday, he grabbed me and said, hey, let's go out to the hospital. I want to show you why I don't want you to have a motorcycle. And he and I walked into the operating room, street clothes and all, and watched the repair of a seriously injured person who had been in a severe motorcycle accident. He had sustained a degloving injury, among others. And all of a sudden, I saw tendons and arteries and veins and nerves. And they would show how if you pull on the tendon, the thumb would work. And I thought, that's the most wonderful thing I've ever seen. Isn't that fascinating? You know, you're a kid and you're sticking your head up looking to see what's out there. And here was what's out there. That's how... My hand works. That's what that whole that's just a marvelous mystery. And with a few minor deviations since then, I was hooked. It was going to be orthopedic surgery somehow. 
did it work? Did it cure you of wanting a motorcycle? Uh, there wasn't a chance. Dad had already made that decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us, sir, uh, there's a lot of things you could have done, but joint replacement became your go-to. Just curious what that looked like. What pulls you in? Well, the interesting thing about that is that looking back, which is what you do when you're 95, looking back, it's a surprise that I wound up in hip surgery in the sense that no one in my family uh, had ever been involved in research and no one in my family had ever been involved in surgery. My dad had started out as a general practitioner and then became a radiologist. There's a lot of medicine in the family. Dad was a physician. His father was a physician. My brother's a physician. His son's a physician. My daughter is a nurse. But none related to surgery. And in another interesting and rather surprising way to me, nothing in my youth suggested either research or surgery. You know, I didn't have a chemistry set in the basement that blew up the basement, or I wasn't like E.O. Wilson with just one eye out in the fields all day, every day, searching for tiny uh, insects or for butterflies or for the ants. That period of my youth was sort of standard. You know, what you did was uh, you went to school, you played in the band, you played some sports, and and you went home. There was nothing distinguishing about either research or surgery. The University of Pennsylvania, even in college uh, in those days, I'm now talking about the 40s, uh, 1940s, there wasn't research. You did some experiments, but you were simply cookbooking what had been done before, nothing in the way of innovation. And it wasn't until medical school that uh, the idea of research became important. I was at Penn. And it was the lifeblood of the medical school and of the surgical training program. And it was there that the uh, excitement of, uh, importance of, and necessity for research became important. And then, curiously, out of uh, a never-ending love for every aspect of medicine, I was enchanted by uh, each of the rotations that I had, but temporarily but enchanted by neurology and enchanted by OB-GYN and enchanted by urology and enchanted by internal medicine and also by surgery, but ultimately by the excitement of taking an active stand and doing something definitive to help the people with the appropriate diseases. So it was that transition without any precedent that... uh, ultimately led me to surgery and thus within surgery to orthopedics. Then when it came to deciding about the hip, my orthopedic training was at the MGH and the Children's Hospital, the home of Marius Smith-Peterson and the cup arthroplasty. And as a difficult, demanding operation and a prolonged rehabilitation, It had all of the complex elements of a major challenge, including the fact that it clearly would have benefited by major improvement. So I was looking for a surgical venture that was demanding, that not many people were capable of doing, that 
required uh, intensive input and prolonged rehabilitation, meaning a long interaction with the individual. And the work of Smith-Peterson was a perfect fit for those desires. Let's walk through some of the challenges that were going on in those early years, things that your research would come up with some breakthrough solutions for it all. Pulmonary embolism. What was going on with that in hip replacement surgery at that time, and and what did you come up with? That's a, a very emotional issue with me in the sense that the customary way that you learn about disease is that you read about it. Let me use it, and then you find out what it's really like. Let me use as an example Parkinsonism. And so in the books, you sit down and read about a mask-like facies and a propulsive gait and a pill-rolling tremor. And as you're sitting there as a medical student reading this, you're saying to yourself, what in the world is a mask-like face and what would a propulsive gait look like and what in the world is a pill-rolling tremor? then you see a patient whose face is just like a mask. And strangely enough, when they walk, it looks like somebody's behind them pushing them and they're being propulsed forward. If you look at their hands here, the the fingers are going through an action that looks like they're rolling a pill. And all of a sudden you go, oh, oh my goodness, that's what that's about. Well, I was seared by learning the difference between reading about a fatal pulmonary embolus and experiencing it when one of my hip patients died in my arms of a fatal pulmonary embolus. And the searing part was worse when I had to go tell his wife and his kids that instead of being helped, by an operation that I had recommended, he was dead. Now, this was in the late 1950s. And if you looked around, nobody, but nobody was working on this issue for elderly patients undergoing hip surgery. They had a substantial mortality from that problem, but nobody was working on it. And the parameters at that time were wretched. You couldn't make the diagnosis of deep vein thrombosis. You had no idea why some of the clots went to the lungs. There was no effective management or prevention of pulmonary emboli and no effective way to prevent the fatal pulmonary emboli. That's a pretty good challenge. And so the question was does that have anything to do with orthopedics? Today it does. Today, Orthopedists are skilled in this particular problem. At that time, it had nothing to do with us at all. You know, we had to do with the musculoskeletal system, but for goodness sakes, not the thromboembolic disease. The question then is, okay, if there's a problem that is killing your patient and nobody's doing anything about it, maybe that's someplace you ought to go work. So I put together a team with a cardiologist and a general surgeon who was interested in issues of bleeding and clotting. And we said, we have no idea that we could do anything, but you aren't going to find out unless you try. And so we said, let's take a look. Now, if you have no idea how to solve a problem, there are really only two categories. You can go to what is known already and say that's clearly that's not used because that's a lousy solution or you can vet a new solution and hope that that's 
also valuable. We chose the least worst, which was the crazy idea that you're going to do a big operation in the hip and you're going to do it with the patient already on blood thinner. You knew they were going to bleed and you knew the bleeding would be bad, but if it stopped the death, then there was something to be said for it. And the, the basic fundamental issue was pretty simple. I know how to treat a bleed. I don't have any idea in the world of how to treat death. So very, very, very tentatively, but with our hearts in our throat, we started giving warfarin, Coumadin, to patients before the surgery so that the anticoagulation would be in force while the operation was being done because some of those people died the same day of the operation. So we had anticoagulation in force during the operation. Well, what happened? The bleeding surely increased and some of it was pretty tough. But as I mentioned, you know, it's not fun or pleasant, but you can treat a bleed. And when the end of that first study was done, there were no deaths. Holy smokes. There is a way that you can titrate anticoagulation in the face of large surgery and get away with it and gain from that the prevention of the fatal pulmonary emboli. Well, then we said, okay, let's try it again with a slightly lower dose. Well, there's big risk in that. If you lower the dose and it still causes the bleeding and doesn't prevent the death, you go, oh, I'm very sorry that experiment didn't work out. But it's the only way to find out if you have a way to improve on what you've got. So we lowered the dose. It still worked. Well, we then said, I wonder how far you can push this. Let's lower the dose some more. And the third time around, we lowered the dose even more, and it still worked. So now we had a mechanism that said, hey, it's not necessary to sit here forever with my patients dying because I recommended that they have uh, hip surgery. Instead, we could recommend the hip surgery and prevent the deaths. Then we went on because of intriguing work that the general surgeon had done on aspirin and its effect on platelets. And we were the first people to use aspirin in the prevention of venous thrombotic disease and fatal pulmonary emboli. We did a prospective randomized double-blind study against a placebo. Try that these days. And it turned out that, in fact, the aspirin worked. And so now we had a new method as well and, and much less aggressive in terms of upsetting the metabolism. And then from there on, lots of other people joined in the effort and it became a worldwide process. And so many progressive changes have taken place that now following total hip replacement surgery, instead of a 2% or 3% mortality from fatal pulmonary emboli, it's under 1% damn near zero. Well, Dr. Harris, let's talk about two for a minute. Not 2%, but two books that showed up on my doorstep the other day from Amazon. One of them entitled Vanishing Bone. Wanted to ask you about it. What inspired you to write this, sir? Interesting question. What stimulated me to write Vanishing Bone? In reality, the two central features of Vanishing Bone are the mystery of this remarkable disease, periprosthetic osteolysis. The sequence of events ultimately resulting in the complete elimination of a worldwide disease. 
And the book tells the story of this circuitous route with a number of blind ends that represents the actual nature of science and shows how it is, it's one example of how it is, that you can apply science to a totally unknown, a disease that had never been seen before in the history of mankind and wind up understanding the disease and curing it. That in itself was motivation to write it. And then the second major element within it was a description of a separate issue of a similar nature approaching the problem of fatal pulmonary emboli when we started a total unknown and working out along with lots of other people various methods to virtually eliminate that problem as well following total hip replacement surgery in the elderly. There was a third smaller element in that, a subset that dealt with the unique problems associated with hip reconstruction in those patients who had developmental dysplasia and or total dislocation of the hip. But what I'm getting at is that the fundamental driver was the content. That is to say, these three areas of approaching in, quote, unquote, insoluble problems, and then solving them. So it was how science works and how it is that things as diverse as prosthetic osteolysis, fatal pulmonary emboli, and developmental dysplasia all can be brought into a better perspective by applying the scientific method to improve the human experience. Now, there's a, a totally separate element in all this, and that was my son. I have a son, John, who was urging me to write the book. And I was fighting it tooth and nail. Uh, I did not want to write the book. At Christmas time, I would get a Christmas gift from him uh, in a book entitled How to Find a Literary Agent. And then for my birthday, I would get a card that has to do with when are you going to write the book? And, and he ran an extraordinarily persistent and very effective lobbying campaign that actually gets the credit for writing the book. And then there's just one other element on the issue of the book. I'm now in a retirement community with an extraordinary group of human beings, one of them being E.O. Wilson. And he and I had become very close friends, and it was a great joy to ask him if he would put his perspective on this book and write the foreword. So those are the diverse elements that led to that book. E.O. Wilson, he's a biologist, isn't he? Yes. He, he actually began his career as studying ants. He lost the use of an eye in a fishing accident as a child, and he was virtually abandoned by his family. And with his one eye, he spent all of his youth in the woods looking for small animals like ants. And he built a distinguished career. He was a university professor at Harvard grew out of the study of ants into the study of society, and he is one of the formidable intellects of our era. Going back to the book for a moment, sir, osteolysis, veterans in this industry, y'all remember the phrase cement disease. What was the aha moment for you when you realized where this was really coming from? Well, two different things. 
the awakening came in seeing my own patients with this destructive disease. The first patient that I actually saw was a malpractice attorney from San Francisco who was sent for advice about his uh, this destruction around his total hip. And clearly in those days, we knew nothing about it. And I had never seen anything that could destroy bone so rapidly and so effectively without inducing any response. Ordinarily, there will be a periosteal response to trauma or a periosteal response to infection, but the only thing that destroys bone like this is cancer. And I was sure I was looking at cancer around a prosthesis. The shock was that the histology was simply macrophages and tons of them and osteoclasts. And you say, what in the world is this? And the reason nobody had ever seen this disease before is that the total hip is a wear machine. You can't have things move against each other and not produce wear. Everything produces somewhere. At the time, we were involved in an extraordinary experiment called total hip replacements in which we were burying inside the body a wear machine. We didn't recognize that that was a component of this extraordinary advance. And while for the patients for whom it worked were ecstatic, meanwhile, the biology was trying to solve the problem of tiny wear particles of the plastic. So now, as that became more recognized, the question was, what's causing it? That's what led to your comment about cement disease. It was recognized that the cement was breaking down and tiny particles of the cement were apparently the stimulus to the macrophages. And since they couldn't deal with the cement, they kept churning out cytokines and enzymes. And as they did that, they inadvertently stimulated osteoclasts and bingo, the bone was eaten away. The biology was an important part because molecular biology had just reached the level of being able to attack these kinds of cellular interactions. And in fact, we wrote the first article on the molecular biology of paraprosthetic osteolysis. Now, the next step, one of the aha moments was the realization that the same thing could happen in the absence of cement. Uh-oh, that destroys the theory. It's not cement disease, or it, it is cement disease plus something else. And in fact, then it became apparent that it is not just cement disease, it is particle disease. Because particles of the polyethylene could lead to the same macrophage response. So a big transition was the realization that, oh my goodness, it's not just particles of cement, it is particles. And so now you had to improve cement so it didn't break down, and you had to improve polyethylene so it didn't wear as much. Then the next step was, are you asking an impossible task? Is it possible to have a joint and not have it wear? Well, the answer is no. You can't have a non-wear machine. 
So now you had to adjust your thinking to say, okay, if I can't have a, a machine that doesn't wear, can I have one that wears so slightly that you're below the threshold of causing this disease? The disease didn't exist in 100% of the patients. It was only 30 or 40% of the patients. So a number of patients, even with the old polyethylene, were able to have a wear rate that was not high enough to activate the process. So now you you could sit back and say, okay, I have defined the problem. The problem is finding something that moves and doesn't wear enough to cause the problem. Or putting it another way, the question is, can you get a plastic with sufficient wear resistance that this disease never happens. That was interesting. I was uh, 63 when I decided to take on that problem. I sat and thought about it. Well, this process of thinking about it was very disappointing. It wound up saying, don't even look for a material. And the reason is, if I found a material I thought that really looked great, how would I prove it to myself that it works? let alone to other skeptical orthopedic surgeons, let alone to the FDA, and let alone to some manufacturer to spend tons of money making and selling it. In other words, how can you prove as closely as you can before putting it in humans that it's going to work? Well, that then superimposed itself as a problem even before looking for a better material. Because if I got a material that looked pretty good, how would I know it's going to work? And that's what led to a three-year and very expensive detour in our research. All of a sudden, we stopped looking for a better material and started building a hip simulator. We had to have an artificial way of testing the material. Were there commercial simulators available during that time period? There were hip simulators. Uh, Zimmer had used theirs on their black poly, and, and the machine led them to the wrong answer. The same thing was true with Helmetica on their heat-pressed polyethylene. They tried it in their simulator, and it seemed to work fine. It wasn't that the material was fine. It was that their simulator was lousy. And the same thing was true with Depew with their so-called enhanced polyethylene. They tried it on their simulator. So now you say to yourself, oh, well, is it possible to build a better hip simulator? Now, a project to try to get rid of paraprosthetic osteolysis suddenly becomes a problem in building a better hip simulator. And so we spent three years and, in fact, built a really sophisticated hip simulator. At that point, we then said, okay, now we've got a machine that we think is a pretty good test of whether or not a new material will really produce results that we can rely on. And then we said, okay, now we need to find a material. Well, the, a funny thing happened. Louis Pasteur came to our rescue, uh, not Louis himself, but his motto. And his motto was, chance favors the prepared mind. That's worth thinking about. Chance favors only the prepared mind. What that meant for us was this. In totally unrelated 
experiments, we had, along with other people, taken to inviting sophisticated patients who could understand the importance of the question if they would give us their hip back after they no longer needed it. In other words, when they died, would they will me their hip? And we had a program of collecting bodies from all over the country and obtaining not only the hip, but the surrounding material. When we examined these under scanning electron microscopy, we found a very funny change. Polyethylene is an extraordinary material, and it is not organized. The long strands of polyethylene are amorphous in their organization, meaning it's like spaghetti in a bowl. The strands go all different directions and intertwine with each other, but it has no organization. When we did scanning EM, scanning electron microscopy, of the area just underneath the maximum weight, in gate, polyethylene molecules had actually moved in the body because of gate, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. The molecules moved and they lined up. And in that area, all of the molecules were in a row. That is so fascinating. Now, that's a that's a nutty observation. I mean, what do you do with that? What does that mean? Why did it happen, etc.? But it led to a tentative hypothesis. Maybe it's this shift in the molecular position that allows the polyethylene to wear. The reason for thinking about that was that the wear of polyethylene, ultra-high molecular polyethylene, the very same material, when used in industry for lots of things, wears in big pieces or chunks. It doesn't do that in hips or knees. In hips or knees, it wears in tiny particles. So somewhere there was something different about ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene wearing in people versus every other use. And the hypothesis was maybe that relates to this reorientation of the molecules. Think, oh my God, well, could that be true? Well, you know, it's a weak hypothesis. Uh, nobody had ever suggested that before. And all hypotheses are very weak until proven right. So I said, well, you know, we don't have any better thought so far. Let's attack this from the point of view of seeing if we could find a way to stop the reorientation of the molecules, would that change the wear? And if it did change the wear, would it produce some other adverse effect? So with that slim read, we started on this quest. And I had a friend at MIT who dealt with molecular structures. And I said, Ed, can you keep them from reorienting? And his answer was wonderful. He said, sure. I said, how? He said, we're going to cross-link it. We're going to pour in tons of energy and chemically bond one strand to the next strand. From there on, they will not be able to move. So we then set out to see if we could cross-link polyethylene and see if that would reduce the wear to a level so low that the disease did not occur. Well, tell us about that cross-linking journey. Was it smooth sailing or a road fraught with peril? 
Well, cross-linking it turned out to be fun. Some of the experiments melted. In some of the experiments, the polyethylene caught fire. And the ones that really frightened us were the ones that exploded. Well, you went back to the drawing board and said, why is that? And what, what can we do about that? We hired a very intelligent PhD graduate from MIT. He joined the lab, that's Orhun Maratoglu, and he's now running my lab. And he, along with the MIT folks, worked out a way to cross-link without damage to by fire or explosion or melting. And we now had a candidate material. We went back and tested it in the hip simulator, and we couldn't find anywhere at all. Now, you knew that had to be a lie because there had to be some, but it was so low, even our exacting techniques of looking for where couldn't find any. Now, we had a material that had a strong scientific base that it should be able to work. The next step was interesting because we decided to go to the FDA ourselves. No investigators go to the FDA. Industry goes to FDA. And the reason for that is that the FDA doesn't approve material. It approves only products. It has to be something ready to be used in humans. And so the investigators generally never go to the FDA. The companies do. We decided to go anyway because I wanted to have all the information I could before I started talking to any of the companies. Well, the FDA interview was fascinating too. What you do is give all of your material to the FDA for them to study for several months before you go talk to them. And then they grill you and you have one hour. And that one hour is going to determine whether or not they are going to look favorably on your product. About halfway through the hour, every alarm bell in the building rang. It was an emergency. There was a bomb scare. Our interview was destroyed, and everybody fled the building. You go, oh, dear, another hurdle to get over. Well, it turns out that the FDA was impressed with our work, and we managed to continue talking with them They couldn't approve it because we didn't make a product, but they certainly indicated that they thought our investigations were thorough and effective and that we probably had something that might be of value. Then we set out to get uh, manufacturers, and that had its own hurdles as well. Seltzer came on early and said, yes, we understand this. We think this might be terrific. And... Uh, Zimmer was hesitant and J&J was interested. And finally, we elected to go with Zimmer. Zimmer being a big U.S. company and Sultra being a big European company. Then out of the blue, for separate reasons, Sultra went bankrupt and Zimmer bought them. So instead of having two manufacturers, we now had one. But Zimmer did bring it to a manufacturer, took it to the FDA, got approved by the FDA, and then began to market it. Part of that story is how science works and how it doesn't work and what the pitfalls are and the blind ends. And ultimately, the excitement is that something that used to be as common as 30 or 40 percent 
in many series of total hip replacements and total knee replacements, that is to say, paraprosthetic osteolysis, which was worldwide, is now gone. Well, Dr. Harris, the Mayo Clinic just released data to the International Hip Society validating all this work you just talked about to an incredible degree. Care to share the details? Yes, this was a meeting in May of this year in Boston of the International Hip Society, and they reported on 16,421 total hip replacements over a follow-up period as much as 15 years. And of that group of total hip replacements done using our cross-linked polyethylene, the incidence of paraprosthetic osteolysis was zero. The one other additional point is that if you now postulate the cost of revision surgery and the re-revisions in some because of paraprosthetic osteolysis, in today's numbers of total hip replacements, the reduction in cost to the United States healthcare system each year by eliminating those revisions is a billion dollars each year and will be a billion dollars each year into the future indefinitely. And the other side of the coin is that we now have 25-year experience in people with this material and thus far over the first 25 years and probably 12 million cases, there have been no adverse side effects of cross-linking the polyethylene. Well, Dr. Harris, we cannot talk about the poly without mentioning the shell it goes into as a modular acetabular shell got passed on to the field in a hip I was in the other day. I thought of you, sir, as you were part of the development of the first modular shell design that also addressed acetabular fixation. Any thoughts on that project? Yes, indeed. Uh, Again, a long history because I made the first modular acetabular component for use with cement and you cemented the modular shell in place and that was uh, 1971 what's that 50 plus years ago that same concept then became very important two ways the new ways were by making the shell cement less and having a bony ingrowth surface on the outside and secondly fitting it out with the cross-linked polyethylene. This was a combined effort of George Galante and me, and I admired George so much, and he was a spectacular contributor to our field as well. And when the two of us put our heads together to do the Harris Galante socket, that was a huge step forward. And now virtually all sockets are modular, again, worldwide in use. And interestingly, in this same Mayo Clinic report of over 16,000 total hip replacements, all done with this socket or a minor modification of this socket that George and I designed. The incidence of loose acetabular components was 0.1%. In other words, out of the 16,000 cases, 16 came loose. That, too, is a revolution. Just incredible design work there. Over your 60 years in this industry, there's been so many innovations in design and techniques. Uh, What do you believe are the high points as you look back? 
this is such a multifaceted affair. Uh, there were many different design elements in improving cemented femoral components, in improving cement less femoral components, in improving the incisions, and in and in improving techniques of how you did the cementing or how you did the cementless uh, application of the implant. And it leads to an interesting thing. There's not one truth. There's not a single truth. There are many different ways to make this operation work well in terms of whether you want to use cement or whether you want to go cementless and which technique you use and which design you use. It's important to understand that there are a variety of different approaches to this and a variety of different designs, all of which work. Now, that's a small percentage of the ones in total. In other words, many designs don't work and many techniques don't work. But among the ones that are successful, it's remarkable that what we used to think of, I used to think of and every designer himself always thought of, my design is going to be by far the best. Well, there are a number of different ways to make it work. And it's important to recognize that different approaches can also lead to success. Speaking of different approaches, 2013, a Lifetime Achievement Award was handed to Dr. Charlie Ng from the Hip Society, an organization you founded. I so enjoyed seeing you two on the podium back in the day. We lost him last year, and I was just wondering if you'd like to share any thoughts about your interactions with him. Charlie was wonderful, a joyous human being and a diligent worker and quite innovative in his approach. And, a, you know, in a certain sense, uh, in a very kind sense, a worthy adversary because it was always fun to match wits with Charlie. On major areas, he and I would disagree heartily. But as I pointed out, over time, I came to realize that what he was saying had truth to it. I think he would probably admit, if he could, uh, that some of the things that I advocated have some truth to them as well. He certainly adopted the cross-linked polyethylene, and he followed our advice in terms of preventing fatal pulmonary emboli. So we wound up uh, sharpening our own positions because of a notable adversary, and that made each of us better, and it made the field better. And then over time, one can gather enough information to recognize which components of this set of ideas really work and which components of the other set of ideas really work as well. Did you ever slip in an AML just to see what all the fuss was about? Of course. Well, speaking of innovation, the second book that came into my mailbox is entitled The Harris Orthopedic Laboratory. Tell us about the book, the work, and what's ahead for this organization. Let's put it in, in a broad perspective. I have savored my experience as an orthopedic surgeon. I love taking care of patients. I just adore it. And I loved going to the operating room. I found that fascinating, and I loved the research. So it, it was three different components, but the research element grew out of a, a need to, I suppose it grew out of applied dissatisfaction. You have to be dissatisfied. You have to say to yourself, is this the best 
we can do. Isn't there a way to do this better? Do I have to stick with this, which is not working very well? And so if you have the dissatisfaction and then you don't just bay at the moon, you say, I'm going to do something about it, then it drives you to say, well, let's go scratch around and find out if we can think of ways of doing it better. That's the origin of the lab. It started absolutely from scratch. And at first I had one technician. There were two of us working in the lab, she and, and me. And we were doing dog experiments, for example. We were studying metabolic bone disease. And we had to do experiments on the dogs around the clock, 24 hours a day for a week at a time. We were using radioactivity to study skeletal metabolism. Well, she took 12 hours during the day so I could be seeing patients. And I took the 12 hours when she went home. And we did that for a week. And we did a number of those. And some of that work wound up being published in the New England Journal. So it was valuable work. But it speaks to the fact that it was a nascent operation to begin with, just Edith and me. It grew over time. The strength of it was that it was a small, tightly knit, tough organization. Nobody had a job description. Everybody was on every project all the time, even though you might not be assigned to that project. In other words, you had to be thinking about that project, even if you weren't working on it. And over time, it played an important role in our training program because mine was one of the few uh, residencies and fellowships that included research. Most surgeons didn't want that skill, but a few did. And those that did were among the smartest and the most curious people in the field. And so we attracted a lot of uh, extraordinary young people who wanted to master total joints and at the same time look at how one attacks these problems scientifically. And it was out of the lab that we produced 525 refereed publications, five lifetime awards, and it really led to what may be my most important contribution in the field, that is a series of 100 extraordinarily talented people who were very smart and talented before they came to me, but came and spent some time with me looking at how we approach problems. So the Harris Fellows are probably the most enduring contribution that I've made. A couple names familiar to the device Nation audience, Rubash, Schmalzried, Maloney, Geronic, all with one thing in common. They came through your program. Uh, what inspired you to start it? Well, the issue was we were developing things that required more understanding initially. For example, some of the things we did with the innovative stuff with total dislocation of the hip. Uh, Charlie said it couldn't be done. Well, that's, you know, to a young guy, that's just a challenge. Let's go do that. But in doing it, you wound up with unusual operations and surgery in areas that most people don't go and techniques that require specialized skills. 
And so if those were going to spread, then I needed to have some surgeons come and spend extra time learning those special techniques. And in fact, uh, so doing obviously enhanced my work a great deal because, you know, we had lots of smart people contributing their own ideas and lots of smart hands and minds applied to the problem so that it gradually grew and became an integral part of not only the clinical care of the patients, but also the research activity of the patients. And then they metastasized because they went to their own home institutions and could carry these ideas around the country. Any advice you'd like to give fellows coming out in today's environment? Yes, be totally dedicated to absolutely the best that can be done. And at the same time, be operatively dissatisfied. That is to say, be dissatisfied with the limits that you see now, with the shortcomings or failures or inadequacies of what we're doing now, and convert that dissatisfaction into a quest that says, we're going to do better. While we're talking advice, Dr. Harris, a lot of reps listen to this show. Any advice to them? You've certainly seen your share of them in your OR over your career. What separates the good ones from the really great ones? These same principles. The really great reps are such an asset. And They are doing the same thing. They are looking at everything they're doing and everything that the surgeons are doing and everything that's going on in the operating room and in that aspect of the hospital and saying, how can we make it better? How can I make it better? And they go beyond just the routine. Yes, they know all of the existing material, but then say, what about this and how could that work? And what would happen if that took place rather than our planned approach? And so they are thoughtful, creative, and intuitive and have a desire to say, Uh, I'll bet you we can do it even better. Well, Dr. Harris, advice to our industry, sir. Surgeon scientists, which you are certainly one, have checked off a lot of the big boxes in our space. What's even left? Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Big question, right? Well, let's look at total hip surgery, for example. You know, I was loving every inch of that, as you could sense from my description so far. And yet it seemed to me there's a curious element to this. It's not really too smart to wait until the joint's severely damaged and deteriorated and then go fix it. That's fine. That's fun. And I love doing it. But for goodness sakes, even better would be to prevent it from deteriorating. And that led me to say, I wonder why in the world the hip joint deteriorates. And, or put it another way, what is the etiology of osteoarthritis of the hip? And the standard worldwide acceptance at that time was that it was a deficiency of some sort in the cartilage, and the cartilage wasn't strong enough and wore out. Well, nobody could identify this deficiency in the cartilage, but that didn't seem to slow down the idea that it had to be the cartilage. In reviewing all of the patients that I was seeing who came for the reconstruction, if you gathered all of their previous x-rays and reviewed them, many, many of the people had some abnormality 
in the anatomy of the joint. The socket might be a little bit shallow or the femur wasn't quite, the femoral head wasn't quite round. And as I put all of that together, we began publishing, this was in the late 60s, early 70s, we began publishing saying, hey, you know, I think a lot of osteoarthritis of the hip is secondary to underlying abnormal anatomy and that these are developmental abnormalities, not abnormalities in the cartilage at all. Well, you can imagine there was a huge ruckus over many years over that crazy idea. But in fact, that idea has been strongly proven to be correct. And that fit in with what Gans was doing in terms of FAI. We had the idea that this was probably the problem, but we had no explanation of why. And he came forth with the explanation of why. And when you put those two together, it makes a very comprehensive study of why it is that the hip joint deteriorates. And in fact, we published a joint article on his work and our work dealing with why osteoarthritis of the hip takes place. And we would postulate that 90% of all osteoarthritis of the hip is secondary to developmental abnormality. Now, that excludes rheumatoid arthritis and excludes ochronosis and it excludes a number of other relatively rare diseases, but it also includes all of the things like multiple epiphyseal dysplasia, which is a developmental abnormality. So that now the emphasis is not on a cartilage abnormality, which even 70 years later has not been identified, but rather what can be done to prevent or correct the developmental abnormalities, and that's the whole field of dealing with FAI. Well, Dr. Harris, care to elaborate on what FAI is for listeners hearing that for the first time? FAI is a term meaning uh, femoral acetabular impingement, and what that refers to is the fact that uh, with the developmental abnormalities, the changes in the normal contour of the socket or of the femoral head or both. There may be impingement at extremes of motion between something on the femoral side and something on the acetabular side. It could be the femoral neck, for example, or it could be an abnormal contour of the femoral head that doesn't quite fit, and it's called femoral acetabular impingement. What it says is that because the socket is not completely normal, one impinges against the other. And it is this abnormality that actually causes the uh, deterioration of the joint. An organization dedicated to presenting evolving techniques on this very subject, sir, OSAT. And just last year, Dr. Wayne Proprosky had this to say, and I quote, I am honored to have the opportunity to have presented this Lifetime Achievement Award to Dr. Harris. I can't think of a more appropriate scientific event to acknowledge the enduring and transformative contributions of one of our most admired mentors and pioneers in the field of hip replacement, unquote. That had to have been such an honor receiving that. Very, very pleased indeed. Very indebted for that honor. Let me just embellish it a little bit 
at ISTA, International Society of Technology for Arthroplasty, in Maui last year, there was a similar honor to me. And that honor was followed by an even greater honor in the sense that the next five speakers after I received that honor were Harris Fellows. Wow. What a powerful moment that had to be. I almost don't want to say anything else at this point. Just kind of rest on that for a second. But we got to finish. And as we come to the finish line, Dr. Harris, a lot of people, myself included, we could easily construct your legacy from the things we've talked about today, even from the story you just shared. But let's put it back in your lap. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, in in simple terms, uh, I think we did make it better than we found it. Left it better indeed, Dr. Harris. James Brown was always called the hardest working man in show business. And several of your colleagues have shared with me that you are the hardest working surgeon scientist they have ever known. So on behalf of this entire audience and patients around the world, I just want to thank you for that, sir. Not giving up, just incredible effort and perseverance on the topics we've talked about today. Crossing poly, PE, prevention, implant design. Work that I absolutely believe has made hip replacement the operation of the century. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. By the way, thank you so much for saying yes to coming on and sharing your story, sir. You're quite a hero of mine in our space, and and thank you again for your just amazing work. Uh, Happy to do it. I think you've done a great job. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Dr. Harris and Dr. Geronic for making this such a very special birthday celebration today. Look, whether you're a surgeon, a rep, or a member of industry, I know how busy you all are. So giving up an hour of that to listen to this show and this business, well, that means something. It means more. So I throw a Dava guitar pick in your direction, something I've always wanted to do, but when you're playing in a church band, it's completely inappropriate. Well, thank you. Thank you for being there as we've watched Mr. Rogers together climb Mount Everest, sat in on an FBI behavioral brief hung out in a Nashville studio and along the way heard from some truly iconic surgeon and industry names in our space. Again, thank you so much for your windshield time. It's been a great ride, but we've got a lot more miles to go. The lineup we have coming will just blow your mind and deliver to us all some serious marginal gains. Special thank you to the great folks at OneTray for sponsoring this episode and so look forward to seeing you all on episode 101. 